You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Father, thank you. We remember that Jesus Christ said, because I live, you also will live. Father, you have glorified your Son and given him a name that is above every name. And at his name, we gladly bow our knees. We gladly confess with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory and to your honor, Father. Christ is deserving of this, and Christ alone we confess, not ourselves. He is glorified. And thank you that now, by faith in him, we can live with him, and because he lives, we also can live. Thank you, Father. Our prayer is offered in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're taking your seats, please join with me and open up your Bible to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one close to you on the pew in front of you. Over the course of 2018, we're considering the excellent way of Christian living. We're taking six weekends to consider these virtues, faith, hope, and love. And this weekend, together with next, we'll be considering, considering the excellent way of faith. Often I found that in our journey of faith, we can find ourselves drifted to a place that we never thought we could ever get to. And we don't even know how we actually got there. It seems to me that it is the small changes in our life that create these seismic shifts. Think of um, someone on an expedition traveling through the forest. They've been given GPS location to get to a distant place, but they only have a compass in front of them. And they know they need to travel on a specific bearing on that compass, but maybe for half an hour, They aren't looking at the compass, and they think they're following the right bearing, but they've turned slightly just a few small degrees. If they keep walking on that bearing, that person might end up miles away from where they thought they were going, and they didn't even know how they got there. This weekend, we're considering Galatians 2 and 3. What might have seemed like small changes in the theology of the Galatian church actually amounted to seismic shifts that the Apostle Paul said had caused them to drift away so as to abandon and forsake the gospel itself, and they didn't even know it. Maybe you're here today and you're drifting, but you don't even recognize it. Maybe you're here today and you found yourself in a place that you never thought you could actually get to. Maybe you're here and, and you have the compass ahead of you and you just need an encouragement to look down again and make sure you're following the right path. For each of us, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to 21 is going to help us answer this crucial question. If we want to live lives that are devoted to God, how then should we live? As we do weekly, let's stand together to honor God as we read his word. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. This is God's word. It speaks to us today 
And this is what it says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please be seated. If we want to live lives devoted to God, how then should we live? Before we get into the text, let's step back and ask another important question. What even allows us to have a life with God? What even allows us to participate in a life with God? The parameters that God has chosen to allow us to enjoy a life with Him have always included these three things. It has always included faith. It has always included a, a seal that somehow confirms the relationship and the faith that enters us in a relationship. Faith enters us. Some kind of seal confirms the relationship. And then a law. A law that governs the way that the people of God must live in order to enjoy the blessing of that relationship with God. It operated this way in the Old Covenant, before Christ. Abraham had faith in the promises of God and he enjoyed that relationship with the Lord and the blessings that God promised to him. The seal that God chose to identify and confirm their relationship was the seal of circumcision, a physical mark that Abraham and all of his male descendants were required to mark their bodies with to identify that they would live by the faith also and follow that relationship. Faith, the seal, the law that governed the relationship, which if broken would bring a curse instead of a blessing, was the law of Moses. And Moses' law required that the people of God follow the works of that law with perfect moral righteousness. And through the works of the law, they would stand before God. But now in Christ, there's a new covenant. These three um, elements remain, but in Christ they've been reclassified. Now we enter into a relationship with God by faith in Jesus. His life, his death, and his resurrection is the way that we receive the promise and the blessing of eternal life. The seal that identifies and confirms that we have a relationship with God is no longer physical circumcision, the mark that you are a Christian is the Holy Spirit living in you. 
and the law that governs us, us is not Moses' law. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. And if you've believed in him, then God has attributed Christ's righteousness to you. So the law that governs us now doesn't demand us to live a certain way. We are governed by the law of Christ, which Galatians 6 says is a law of love. That is the way that we must live. Yet, many in the city of Galatia, many Jews who had come to believe in Jesus and enter the new covenant, began forcing their non-Jewish Gentile brothers in Christ, they began forcing them to be identified in the old seal of circumcision. They began to force them to follow the old law of Moses. You might think that that's just a small change, but in the Apostle Paul's eyes, this was a seismic shift away from the gospel. So Paul wrote to them emphatically saying, no. Paul wrote to them arguing that if they want to live lives devoted to God, they must be justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And it's the same for us. If we want to live lives devoted to God, we can only enter a life with God by being justified by faith alone. Look at the text, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's Paul speaking. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In the letter of the, to the Galatians, Galatians 2, 15 to 21 kind of serves as the thesis statement. And in it, Paul is arguing in such a way that uniquely strips himself down of any grounds for boasting as a Jew. And in turn also strips down those self-righteous gatekeeper Jews who are forcing others to be circumcised. Paul argues in a way that strips himself down of any grounds for boasting and in a way that emphatically holds up justification by faith apart from the works of the law. Now buckle up because we're going to get a little theology lesson here. And it's going to take mental exercise on our account, but buckle up and put in this effort because this has tremendous significance for us. But we cannot understand its significance for us if we do not know first its meaning for them. So how? How does Paul argue in this way? How does he strip himself down for any grounds for boasting? Well, Paul knew that it was self-righteous pride that motivated the Galatian Jews to position themselves as gatekeepers, saying that you can only enter if you follow the old way. And here's how Paul responded, my paraphrase. Yes, yes, we, we are Jews, but Jew or Gentile, no one is justified by the works of the law. We're all only Jew or Gentile justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was saying that the thing that these self-righteous gatekeeper Jews, the thing that they thought made them superior, 
did not make them superior because everyone is on level ground before Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. So in doing so, he strips himself down, strips them down, and says, you have no right to boast in what you've done or in what you force other people to do. How then does he emphatically uphold justification by faith? Well, let's look at the text again, verse 16, and I'm going to read it and stress two particular words. Listen for these words that I'm stressing. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, so these two words that I stressed, what do they mean? And how do they emphatically uphold justification by faith? When Paul talks about no, no person will be justified by works of the law, Paul's referring to individual human beings. No individual human being will be justified by works of the law. But when he says later, no one will be justified by works of the law, that's a really strong emphasis. But it's hard to see in our English translation. From the original language, it could also equally be translated, no flesh, no physical body. No person, no flesh. It's kind of like this. Uh, my mom liked sardines, and whenever she would eat sardines when I was living at home, I would vacate the premises as quick as I could. And uh, if any one of you came up to me and offered me sardines, I would very graciously but truthfully say, I will never eat sardines. But let's say you didn't get the point and you still were persisting for some inhumane reason to continue to offer me sardines. I might emphasize my point more by saying, no molecule of sardine will ever touch these lips. I'm saying the same thing. No sardine, no molecule, but I'm saying it emphatically. And that's what Paul's doing. No person will ever be justified by works of the law. No flesh will ever have a possibility of being justified by works of the law. So in his argument, he disarms the pride of these self-righteous Jewish gatekeepers and upholds justification by faith. Stay buckled in, because look at verse 17. All of a sudden, it kind of looks like he kind of changes gear and starts talking about something else. Let's read it. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What's Paul getting at here? Why does he seemingly change gears? Well, as Paul was penning this letter, he was anticipating these self-righteous Jewish gatekeepers, as they would listen to his letter, to be arguing with his statements. So as he was writing it, he anticipated their arguments and then prepares a rebuttal in response. And here's essentially what he believes these self-righteous Jewish gatekeepers would be arguing back at him with. He believed that they would think something like this. Uh, Paul, uh, don't you know that we Jews 
by keeping the law are really trying hard to keep from sinning. God doesn't like sin. But you're saying now that people are justified by faith and not by the law? Uh, aren't you just giving people license to stop trying to keep from sinning and to keep going on sinning? And aren't you pretty much saying that Jesus is at fault in enabling sinners? Okay, so I kind of said that like a snarky teen because that's what I imagine these people to be like, right? And Paul responds like a mature adult and simply says, uh, no. And he rebuttals them. You think Jesus is at fault for enabling sin? Let me show you who's really at fault. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You think Jesus is at fault? The real fault is rebuilding what God has chosen to dismantle, the law. The real fault is expecting from the law what has been fulfilled in Christ and leading people away from Christ back to what God has dismantled. Christ is not at fault. You are. So you may ask then, as I've asked in the past, Okay, well then, what's the relationship that a Christian now has with the law? If I'm justified by faith, apart from the works of the law, how do I relate to the law? Well, here are three examples that the Apostle Paul gives throughout his letters. Romans chapter 7. Paul says that believers relate to the law like a living spouse relates to their deceased spouse. As long as both spouses are living, both spouses are legally bound to fulfill their marital responsibility. But when one spouse dies, the other spouse is free from those legal responsibilities and can now remarry. Galatians chapter 3. Paul says that the people of God are related to the law like a legal guardian is related to a child. The legal guardian is only necessary as long as the child is underage. But as soon as the child becomes of age, the child is now an adult, and the legal guardian is irrelevant because the child is now free as an adult. Here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, look at it. Here's the third example. Paul says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul says he's died to the law. Like me, you probably have loved ones who are deceased. When a friend or loved one dies, you have the memory of that person, but you have no relationship with that person anymore. Functionally, you can't relate to them anymore. And Paul, this is what Paul is saying. I am free. Believers are free from the responsibility to the law and they have no functional relationship with it anymore. In Christ, we are now alive. In Christ alone and not by the works of the law are we justified by faith. And here's how it's significant for you. Where do you believe you stand before God today? Do you believe that you've entered into a relationship with God because of the works that you've done? Or do you believe that you have a relationship with God because you've been saved by faith?
consider where you stand before God. Now, you might say, as it's most of us might say, I think, I'm saved by grace through faith. Not of my own works. I'm saved by grace through faith. But I'm concerned that while many of us say that with our mouths, we deny it with our actions. You may hold your chin a little higher at church because you think your family name or your ethnicity is a step up on other people. But before God, your heritage counts for nothing. You may choose to only associate with certain people at church and not associate with others intentionally because you think if you're around the right people that that'll elevate your status in the eyes of others. But your associations mean nothing before God. You may be so proud of the spiritual work that you do at church, that you do it your, for your family, that you do for your community, that you do for your small group, and you expect other people to be on your level. And if they're not on your level, you look down on them. But before God, your works count for nothing. I don't ask this next question facetiously. How's that word? I don't ask this next question in jest, okay? I ask this next question honestly. It's the only way to be saved. But do you really want to be saved by grace through faith? Do you really? Because if you do, then like Paul, being justified by faith means that it will strip down every single grounds you think you have for boasting. Anything that you think gets you closer to God or puts you a step ahead of others is dead. It counts for nothing, but maybe you're still boasting in it. I know times I'm tempted to think highly of myself and don't think of myself with sober judgment as Roman 12 says. But if you are so proud of what you've done and you boast about it and you've never felt conviction for that, I'd wager that you don't want to live a life devoted to God. You want to live a life devoted to yourself. Some people live for themselves through their career. Some people live for themselves through their body image. Some people live for themselves through their academics. Some people live through them, uh, for themselves through their hobby or their family. Church is just the arena you've chosen because you're good at it. I'd implore you, change your mind. Believe that the only way you can enter into a relationship with God is because of what Christ has done for you, not what you can do for God. We cannot live a perfect life. We are all wretched sinners. Jeremiah says that the best of our righteous works are filthy rags. So tear them off. Tear them off and throw them out and believe in Jesus. He lived a perfect righteous life. He died the death that you deserve and by faith in him, his righteousness is applied to you. So die to your works. Die to your associations. Die to your heritage. Die to it so that you can really live a life with God. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus and have been trying to earn your way to God, 
believe in him today for the first time, and in a moment, the Father will look at you with the same eyes that he looks at his own begotten Son, Jesus Christ. This is a way that we have a life with God, being justified by faith. So then, if we have this life with God, how can we live that life devoted to God? The next passage tells us, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself before me. If you want to live a life devoted to God, what must you do? How should you live? You must be justified by faith and you must be united with Christ by faith. Paul now personalizes the effect of being justified by faith. Are you trying to live your life for God? On your own effort? On your own vitality? By your own energy? Or are you letting Christ live his life through you? Notice the unity that Paul says the believer shares with Christ. Verse 20, I have been crucified. It's no longer I, Christ in me, but there's still a life that I live. How does this work? How do I not live, and how is Christ in me, and, but how do I still, still live? It's a mystery. But the effect, when you see someone living out of the unity that they have in Christ and not trying to steer their own ship as the captain of their own souls, but allow the true captain to lead them through the seas, when you see someone truly living this way, you know it, don't you? You have Christians that you know in your lives and you see them and it's clear. It seems like they're soaring on wings like eagles, but I feel like I have cement in my soul. The effect of it, what you see is, is that someone who's living with this energy that's clearly not of them and that's clearly different from this world. They have a love in a selfish culture. They have this joy amongst a complaining, discontent culture. They have this peace and patience in a busy and worrisome culture. They have this kindness and goodness in an abusive culture. They have this faithfulness and gentleness and, and self-control in a consumer-driven, me-first culture. And it's so obviously not of them. And if you live that way, your attitude is to say, I'm glad to surrender control to God. I'm glad to die to myself. I'm glad to surrender control over to Christ because by faith, I know the one who lives in me, loves me, and is for me, and can lead me way better than I could ever hope to lead myself. Do you want this? Interestingly, again, in verse 21, Paul kind of shifts gears. Let's look at it. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Grace is like um, saturated through everything Paul's saying, but he hasn't 
really specifically said grace. So why does he bring, bring up grace now? Why does he change gears? Well, it's because, again, he's anticipating these self-righteous Jewish gatekeepers to be arguing with him. And he has a response prepared. So here's my snarky uh, paraphrase of what I think these self-righteous Jewish gatekeepers are saying. Uh, I think they're saying something like, um, Paul, you don't get what grace is. Paul, don't you know that grace is God's favor and God's favor can only be earned through the works of the law? So, so you're saying people are justified by faith and they don't have to work for it. <laughs> so you're telling them the, the grace that they're actually getting well, they're actually getting nothing of meaning. And you're actually nullifying grace because they're not working for it. And Paul, like a mature adult, simply says, no. You think that they're getting nothing because grace is unmerited? You think they're getting nothing because they don't have to work for it? You think grace is being made to mean nothing? I'll tell you what you're doing. For if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. You think I'm making grace nothing? What you're doing, if you think righteousness is through the law, is you're making Christ's death nothing. Because you think you can earn it yourselves. Be sure, Christian, the death of Christ is of first importance to Christian living. His death is my death. His death is my atonement so I can be forgiven. My righteousness so I may be justified. His death is my death so that he may live through me. Do you want to live a life that's devoted to God? Then we must die to ourselves so that Christ may live through us. God's given us two things to remember God, the death of Christ in our walk of faith. Today we're observing communion. And communion is a memorial where we remember the body that was broken, the cup that was spilled. God's given us another thing too, baptism. Being submerged into the water and brought up again is identifying with Christ. Just as Christ was put into the ground and then came out, so being submerged into the water and brought back up is saying, I've died with Christ. But I have an honest question for you, addressed to a few people in the church. Honest question. Why are you so willing and to take the cup and the bread, but so unwilling to get into the water. Why? Why? Parents, and I say this as someone who was in youth ministry for seven years and saw too many youth think they had an assurance of salvation, but never ever show any fruit of repentance, why do we let our kids say they partake in Christ when they show no fruit of repentance? Why don't we disciple our kids to tell them about what communion is about rather than just have a snack on a Sunday morning? It means that I've died with Christ. The death of Christ is of significant importance to Christian living. His death is my death. 
so I might live, my atonement so I may be justified, my righteousness so that I might stand before him. How do you allow Christ to live his life through you? How does this work? If you really want this, what will it look like? Imagine a ship, a huge ship, not like a tanker that has an engine, but like one of those old ships that the explorers who first crossed the ocean might have sailed. Back in that time, they didn't have combustion engines for the ships to be able to generate power themselves, did they? They had something else. They had sails. But the sails themselves didn't generate the power that they needed to sail, did they? What generated the power? It was the wind. You know what a Christian looks like when Christ is living through them, don't you? It's like a ship whose sails are filled and they're sailing through the seas. You know what a Christian looks like when they're not letting Christ live through them, do you? It's like a ship whose sails are down and they're just drifting around the harbor trying to paddle across the ocean. Are the sails up or down in your life right now? When you believe in Jesus in that moment, Christ is in you. But you must lift the sails up. You must abide in Christ every day. By faith, you must seek him. By faith, every day, you must confess that you believe that the God who lives in you, loves you, and is for you. The God who is in you, loves you, and is for you. And then, then you will begin to see Christ live through you because you will hear the voice of your shepherd. You will hear the voice of your shepherd call out and he will say, follow me. And you will see the vitality of the Spirit lift you up to your feet and you will go wherever Christ calls you to go. But you will also feel the tug of temptation pull you back down and say, it's okay. You don't need to listen to that voice. This is why us who are united with Christ cannot live the life of Christ. You cannot live the life of Christ if you're unwilling to die the death of Christ. This is the reason why so many Christians are not soaring on wings like eagles, but feel like their soul is filled with cement. God will lead you to love a neighbor who treats you poorly, yet your own flesh will say, they don't deserve it. Kill that sinful thought by faith and do not let it linger. Believe that we were enemies of God and did not deserve his kindness, yet he still showed it to us. Believe and then obey and show love to that neighbor. God will lead you to have a greater generosity, more than you are now, yet your own flesh will say, I earned it. I'm keeping it. Kill that sinful thought by faith. Believe that every good and perfect gift is from the Father. So, and then obey and open up your hands. God will lead you to confess your sin to others. Yet your own flesh will say, no need to tell. You're not hurting anyone. 
Kill that sinful thought by faith and do not let it linger. Believe as I've had to believe when God struck my heart. Believe that God already sees it. Every secret sin, every unconfessed sin, he's seen it all. Yet believe that Christ has already borne all of the shame of all of your sin. And there's nothing left to be exposed that cannot, has not already been covered by the blood of Christ. Confess it and you will see the comfort and the peace of the Holy Spirit fill your hearts. You see, friends, we cannot live lives devoted to God unless we live by faith. We must be justified by faith. We must be united to God by faith. The excellent way of Christian living is faith, hope, and love. And the scripture tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But when you see someone living by faith, when you see someone dying to themselves and living to God, you can't miss it. You know people in your life who live like this, don't you? You want to soar. I hope you want to soar as on eagle's wings and not be stuck with cement in your soul. I've been inspired by Christians of old who are now with the Lord. Christians who soared as on eagles' wings, who very obviously they had a vitality that was not generated from them. I think of the young pastor from Germany who lived in the time of the Nazi reign, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man of conviction, a man of courage, a man without compromise, a man with faith, a man with joy. Who a man who would not bend to the culture when many other churches were adopting the racist ideologies of the Nazi regime, he said no. And so convinced was he that this man could not be in the rule of that country that he joined a conspiracy to overthrow him. But the conspiracy was found out and he was arrested. Yet in prison, his cellmates noticed that every day he was happy. And so well respected was Dietrich Bonhoeffer by his cellmates that the day that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would die by execution, a Sunday, two Catholics and an atheist asked the pastor who they respected to lead them in an impromptu worship service. And as Mr. Bonhoeffer was praying his last prayer, the door swung open, a man called his name, and he knew he would be about to walk his last steps. And as he left the cell, he turned to one of his cellmates and said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. I think of a woman a courageous woman, a fearless woman, a woman of faith named Elizabeth Elliot, who together with her husband Jim moved to Ecuador to be missionaries. When she had a 10-month-old daughter, her husband Jim with two other or three other friends went to a remote, unreached, 
uncivilized tribe in Ecuador with the intent of sharing the gospel with them. And immediately when they entered the village, the tribesmen speared all of them to death. What would Elizabeth do? She had a 10-month-old daughter. Would she return to the States? No. No, she found two women from that tribe asked them to teach her the language, and then when she had become learned in it, went back to that tribe and shared the gospel with her husband's killers. Who lives like this? One who is not living themselves, but is letting Christ live through them. Church, do you want it? Or are you content in a discontent life? If we are going to live lives devoted to God, it must be by faith. By faith, we are justified and enter into relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. By faith, we are united with Christ, and his death is our death that he may live through us. Let us be a people who abide with our Christ, our Lord, every day, who listen to his voice, and who put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we might live. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. Thank you. You have said, because I live, they also will live. Yet, Lord, I know so often in my own life, I feel like I am trouncing through the bog of despair. I am stuck in the quicksand of doubt. I am shackled by fear. God, liberate your church. Liberate your church that we might live by faith, that we might lift the sails every day. Thank you that you live in us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are for us. Forgive us, Lord, for boasting in what we think we've done ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that we can control our lives better than you. Oh, Lord God, live through us and let your spirit lead us to put to death the deeds of the flesh that by him we might live. In Jesus' name we pray.